Hello, my name's Dan Hancocks, and welcome to Cursed Objects. Joining me as ever is... Cashati, hello. Dr. Cashati to you, thank you very much. Sorry, Dr. Cashati. <laughs> it's been it's so recent, I always forget. <laughs> recent, but confirmed by all the major academic uh, authorization <laughs> bodies. Accreditation, that's the word I was looking for. Welcome back to another episode of Cursed Objects. Um, we hope you've been enjoying the run so far. We just thought we'd flag at the top of the show that we have all of the social media channels. We have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have Instagram. I'm looking into setting up Friendster and MySpace, but that is proving difficult. <laughs> uh, and we also have a Patreon uh, where you can support this work if you can't afford to support the Patreon and get the wide range of benefits that are offered there then uh it would be great if you could just tell a mate honestly it, it's word of mouth is how this stuff goes um and it's how it expands and it's how we reach more people so please do um tell a friend if you've been enjoying it so far so this week on cursed objects i have brought in an a something that i've been dying to talk about quite frankly and dying to eat as well it is a packet of Polish curry flavour ramen noodles that I bought in a local branch of Sainsbury's. I'd spied it some time ago and found that, like a couple of years ago, I think. I remember tweeting it and saying, try telling, try telling you know, this packet of Polish curry flavour ramen noodles that multiculturalism isn't working. You know, this was the sort of the height of like Brexit fervour. And Sorry, stuff. can I just say, can I just say, I actually feel personally attacked that you... Yeah. <laughs> Sure. That you picked this object, like I feel like my life is on the line. <laughs> Trolling. Not just your life, but your cuisine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to describe the packet before we kind of get into the, its sort of horrors. I mean, ultimately, we'll get into this. I'm going to be sort of arguing this is maybe a blessed object in its own way, albeit this is an episode of Cursed Objects. But but first of all, to describe it, if you haven't seen a picture, it's a really bold red packet with a, in yellow font, the word curry in absolutely massive all caps on the front. And then we've got depicted a bowl of yellow, really, really kind of fake, sort of synthetic yellow kind of noodle soup. And some extra photos, the graphic designers thrown in for good measure to sort of remind you that this is actually a really fresh product uh with like a bowl a heaped bowl of powdered turmeric i think that's supposed to be oh no maybe it's curry powder um and there's also it's also thrown into this little sexy little montage a photo of some coriander leaves and some red chili peppers so you know it's going to be absolutely bursting with flavor now pretty much everything else on the packet is written in polish which is not a language i speak if only there was somebody i knew who could help me translate it <laughs> On the front of the packet says um Zupa Buskavichna Osmaku Kurchaka Kore, which means instant soup with the flavour of chicken and then curry in caps, obviously. <laughs> Massive capital letters. <laughs> it also says ostra on it, which means spicy. I wondered what ostra was, because ostra is a word that is separate from the rest of the description, it's sort of hovering over the noodle, uh, the bowl of noodles. <laughs> so that's kind of a warning, I suppose, to the Polish. Uh, diner that this is this is hot 
Yeah. What is, what is the Polish relationship with with heat in food? I think quite a lot of Polish people do like quite spicy food, especially I think there's like a masculine relationship between hot food and like maleness. Like there isn't quite a lot of cultures. I mean there is here. I mean not not I mean there are a lot of European countries where there really there, there really doesn't seem to be that in my experience. Like sort of Spain they just yeah, definitely not Spain, but there is definitely that in like Polish cultures. Like I've I've got like really strong memories of my dad just like eating <laughs> all manner of very intense chilies. <laughs> just like braving something he really wasn't enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to I wonder yeah, I mean, this is maybe a conversation for later, but I wonder if that's like a northern European thing that's something to do with the cold. Who, who knows, but like it's obviously got a lot of commonality with the British relationship with spice as a macho sort of endurance thing, certainly historically with the kind of Vindaloo, uh, the history of like Vindaloo in this country, celebrated in the Fat Les song from the late 90s, of course, as the ultimate kind of expression of British machismo. But anyway, let's get back to the noodles for now, because I have a story to tell you about these. I First of all, I just want to, I want to ask you, Kasia, to guess where these Polish curry flavour ramen noodles were made. Um, maybe like India? Or, I mean, I'm not sure. Vietnam. Oh, okay, right, yeah. Not, not Japan, not Poland, not India, <laughs> not Britain. Vietnam, another country altogether. So I'm just going to run through kind of the background to like how this object came into being. I'm going to do that like nation by nation. I want you to imagine this is like a mapping of the origins of this, this cursed lunch snack. So the flavour designated as curry, which is itself like both vague and quite complex in its origins and it's something that has quite a fluid kind of difficult to pin down meaning and we're gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about kind of curry later but yeah the first thing to say is that like the curry is like a colonial hybrid essentially born of the British Empire's role in India and the heat aspect the chili component is only present in India in the first place because the Portuguese brought the chili pepper from the Caribbean to India in the 15th century. So we're at the flavour stage of just explaining what this object is, and we've already covered like four or five countries over several centuries. Then we get to the idea of ramen. Ramen is adapted from a Chinese dish, it's not Japanese originally, of a wheat noodles in a kind of salty soup broth, often topped with roast pork and a range of other things, as we know. Um, But that was probably brought by Chinese migrants to Japan in the 19th century, where it was then popularized around kind of Japan and then after World War II around the world, especially after the invention of this instant ramen, which we all know and love in its little square packet, also available in cup sort of form, obviously. And that was created by the legendary Momofuku Ando, who is a, a guy who invented instant ramen, was initially told it wouldn't work. This is 1958 he invented it. He was of Taiwanese-Japanese origin. This particular packet of instant ramen was created in Vietnam for a brand called Vifon and distributed to Tan Viet International, who are based in between two tiny villages about half an hour outside of Gdansk in Poland. This particular packet was then shipped to the UK as part of a range of like Polish store cupboard, you know, non-perishable food products. I'm guessing it was shipped anyway, probably to um, the Sainsbury's distribution centre in Dartford, I'm guessing, at the mouth of the Thames, halfway up the mouth of the, the, the estuary. And then finally, 
presumably taken by lorry to my local big Sainsbury's in East Dulwich. So that's a wild journey that encompasses how many nation states did I mention there? Like seven, something like that. And then there's the ingredients, which includes lemongrass, turmeric, aniseed, cloves, cinnamon, garlic, chili, coriander, green onion, and soybeans. And if you were to draw lines on a map of all the of like across the world, if you had a map of the world, drew lines from like all the points where these foodstuffs originated to where they ended up and how they came together. And if you overlaid that map with the map that I've just described of everything else that went into making this object, you'd have like one of those spiders webs where they give the spider loads of drugs, like where they give the spider like methamphetamine and then like, and you're like, oh my God, that poor, poor spider is so fucked. Um, that's what, that's what the map, this map would look like. And I guess that's sort of what fascinates me about it. You know, this is sort of ultimately, this is a story about globalization and globalization is something that has been talked about so much in the last 20 or 30 years. It's really like just swarming around all of the Brexit debate. But even prior to that, you know, you had the anti-globalization movement in the early 2000s that was then, I think, renamed the alter globalization movement because I think people realized that it made them sound parochial and nationalist to say that they were anti-globalization But actually, you know, it goes back into the history of empire, the Silk Road and the like spice trade that goes back centuries and centuries that created this cursed object of curry flavoured ramen noodles from Poland that I bought in London. And I I just want to quote from a hero that is, I know, you know, someone that both you and I worship on this subject, which is Tony Blair, (laughs) (laughs) who said... Because I think, you know, obviously I'm being heavily sarcastic there. He definitely, like, captured something of the spirit of the 2010s, kind of the the global financial crisis, and then the 2010s decline that we have all been loving in in recent years of Brexit and sort of the rise of ethno-nationalism, or the resurgence, we should say, of ethno-nationalism in various forms but Tony Blair captured something of the hubris, I think, of that of the attitude to globalization in the 2000s. In his 2005 conference speech, when he said, the pace of change can either overwhelm us or make our lives better and our country stronger. What we can't do is pretend it is not happening. I hear people say that we have to stop and debate globalization. You might as well debate whether autumn should follow summer. And that is, I think, in a nutshell, the sort of the spirit of the age. Like, you kind of can ask for a better articulation of the swagger and confidence in global capital of the 2000s, uh, maybe the 90s, you could say, as well, um, in that period after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War and before the GFC, Global Financial Crisis, to its friends, of 2008, I mean, there's so much more to say about this packet of noodles, <laughs> I think. But um, <laughs> that, like, I think instant ramen also speaks to our working culture under late capitalism in that a tonkotsu broth, which is not the sort of original soup that you would that the Chinese would have. It would more often be a chicken broth rather than a pork broth, apparently, I, as far as I know. Um, I actually haven't looked this bit, this stuff up. I haven't. Been, this is stuff that I feel like I just know. So if it's wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, tonkotsu broth, like a, the pork bone broth, takes usually I would say a minimum of like eight hours to make of simmering. And I've been told by Japanese friends that like it 
can sometimes be two to three days <laughs> of simmering. <laughs> um, so really quite a long gestation to make a soup. Right. Uh, but that's, you know, this is the Japanese attitude to food. You, you know, you do it properly. And that's why the, like, Momofuku Ando's create, incredible creation, which has taken over the whole bloody world of, of instant ramen, was so revolutionary because he found a way to make the new, like, just to can sort of distill all of that flavour into something that could be, cooked and eaten in two to three minutes in so in a lot of cases with just a kettle you know actually you don't even need a hob you don't need fire um you just need boiling water and and it's the ultimate sort of eat it at your desk you do not have time for a leisurely lunch because the boss is on your back and actually even when the proper ramen is eaten in japanese ramen joints in my experience like you would normally people often go alone it's often like working like salary men as they call them who are grabbing a quick lunch and the whole thing's done in like 15 minutes like you in fact in some places i've been there is an, a sort of vending machine outside the ramen shop and you choose which one you want which ramen you want choose all your toppings on the vending machine it doesn't it doesn't then produce a bowl of soup at the bottom it's like you get a ticket out that explains what sort of ramen you want you walk into the shop, sit down at the counter, hand the receipts to the chef, and then the chef makes you your bowl, and it's usually with you in like a matter of moments, and you're out of there in like 15 minutes. <laughs> um, so this is truly like a food that speaks to a world in which like the imperatives of work and capital have dominated and, well, uh, um, reigned supreme basically over every other concern in our lives. <laughs> to our listeners who probably don't know this, Dan fairly frequently trolls me with like pictures of weird food that he finds. A Polish four cheese ramen, for example, is another. I've got that right here. Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. I've actually tried eating that one. Four cheese ramen. I mean, the Italians should know about this. Quattro formaggi. <laughs> Again, it kind of symbolizes a, a kind of minority group in England who are here to predominantly work although a lot of them have settled in like vast numbers after like 2004 and I think what's really interesting about this is of course there are these kind of strange hybrid flavors that are popular among this kind of diasporic community because it wouldn't be found in like mama's you know traditional Polish kitchen but it would be found mm. in a Sainsbury's <laughs> kind of like aisle where knackered workers who are often manual laborers come in and they don't have that much money and they just yeah. want something that is carby salty delicious because that's the thing about ramen is that it is basically just like the cheapest and most delicious thing that you can get for like 43p mm. and actually i did read somewhere that yeah. ramen is like really really popular as currency within prisons so there's like a whole like financial underbelly that operates in prisons on like ramen because it is something that you that, that you can eat that's like not prison food that's still delicious that's a plot line in Brooklyn 99, I think. Is that true? I had no fucking idea. <laughs> well, I think I read it. I think I read it on a Vice article. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> hey, no bad mouthing my very occasional employer, please. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Say whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's such an interesting point. Yeah. About the sort of subjectivity, the, the like experience of a large proportion of Polish emigres to, to Britain being people who are working really long hours i mean the, the number of like polish delicatessens in london certainly but i've you know i think beyond london as well has obviously 
exploded to cater to post-EU expansion. It's something that was really amazing to me, actually. Like, growing up pre-2004, no one knew anything about Poland. I would be regularly asked by my (laughs) friends whether, like, Poland is where, like, polar bears came from. No one knew where it was on a map. You know, like, growing up, there were just no... There didn't seem to be that many people that were Polish. I didn't know any. The only times that we would go to Polish community centres and we would go to the very few Polish delicatessens that existed. And it was honestly like a revelation when places like Tesco's, not even the big Tesco's, where like a Tesco's Express was also selling not just like one or two products, but there was like an entire (laughs) section that was both refrigerated and in the dry (laughs) world foods aisle that you could actually buy Polish food, you know, that I could just go down there and get like a packet of ogórki, which are gherkins, or like a packet of pierogi, (laughs) which are like kind of Polish dumplings, you know, that I could just literally go to Sainsbury's to get those. It was like such a such a revelation, such a shift. And I kind of feel like there's this kind of weird politics to the world food aisle almost. And I've like kind of been thinking about this recently, about the way that if you go shopping in somewhere like the big Sainsbury's and you go into the spice aisle, you can get like a small glass tube of (laughs) Schwartz paprika and it costs you like, I don't know, like four quid. Or you can go to the world food aisle and you can get a big bag of paprika or a big bag of pretty much any spice and it will cost you like 99p and I was just kind of thinking about that in relation to this discussion because I wonder whether the kind of politics of those spaces is that for like consumers who go into Sainsbury's there are aisles that that sell spices for example that can like accommodate to their tastes but then you can also if you're in the know go to the world food aisle and get the products for much cheaper and I wonder whether that's because places like Sainsbury's and Tesco's are actively trying to undercut the kind of booming because pretty much one of the things that's holding up the high street are local food shops they're also community centers they're like hubs you Mm. know the Polski Sklep is like a community hub for so many Poles but also if they can get their products slightly cheaper in Tesco's, <laughs> then the chances are that they might do a little bit of migrating. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm assuming it's so, it's so fascinating. I could, I absolutely, yeah, could talk about the world food aisle, <laughs> world food aisle for like days on end. I think because the the decision about what gets included there and what and and the migration you're, you, that you described, like of a particular ingredient, where it gets like the seal of approval to be in an official Sainsbury's mm. own brand tub. So paprika, that's normy enough, you know. That's that's kind of establishment an establishment spice. But say something like galangal would not be at this stage. I don't think. I still I remember very vividly the moment a couple of years ago having got quite into Korean food myself because I was traveling to New Malden where there is a really substantial Korean community and some amazing Korean food shops and restaurants so I'd started buying some of the core ingredients that were like completely new to me and completely fundamental to anybody with any Korean heritage or um, or family um, like gochujang which is the spice paste Mm. and obviously I felt I mean this is one of the things I want to talk about today is the sort of cosmopolitanism that you feel and perform when you're a sort of you know dull British person like me but you're showing off your global sort of voracious kind of appetite for just anything and everything I can eat any I'm not I'm not a pie and mash guy I'm a 
you know bibimbap guy and and, and I, I can i can and will eat anything that comes my way but anyway that gochujang was something that was totally new to me and then about a year or so later i remember an episode of master chef where after korean food had sort of been relatively marginalized i suppose on the high street on the average high street they introduced what bibimbap was and they introduced gochujang and they really explained it as well like john tarot and, and greg wallace or whoever it was that week were like you know this is a this is a very spicy but also kind of sweet like red paste and you don't want to use too much but you use it like this and this is what bibimbap is and we're going to challenge you to make it now and literally the same week it appeared in in the big sainsbury's near my house for the first time wow. now is that a coincidence i'm absolutely fascinated about what went on there in terms of the distributional like economics and promotional side of things does the buyer for sainsbury's have a mate who works on the master chef like you know um sort of uh production team who's like look you're gonna have a run on gochujang this week because nine million people or whatever it is like watch master chef and they're gonna be like wow that looks tasty and exciting and that sort of and actually it was around the same time that um h mart who are one of the biggest Korean supermarkets in New Malden, HMart opened two little sort of shops, one of them on Upper Street in Islington, where I'm sure the rent must be extortionate. All I'm saying here really is there is a, there's like a breakout movement, like a moment, sorry, like you might get with a new band or whatever, where they're like, their hit, their first sort of big hit suddenly gets played on daytime radio, gets featured on the main Spotify playlist. Um, gets used on an advert whatever it might be after years of slogging away and the decisions that are made and the demographic analysis that must go on from the big supermarkets about what gets included in the world food aisle to begin with are fascinating to me so like I was trying to think just before we started recording what is in the world food aisle in my local big Sainsbury's and I think and it's going to vary from area to area, right? But I think in the local, my local one, there's a Chinese section, which also incorporates gochujang from Korea and satay sauce, which is Indonesian. There's a Japanese section. There's a Polish section. There's a Mexican section, albeit the Mexican one is dominated by like two big brands, both of which sell rubbish ingredients. <laughs> uh, there's a South Asian section and there's sort of a Jewish section as well which is the only way I can describe it. It's not designated as such, but that's clearly what it is. It's like, you know, we've got mm. we've got matzo, which are sort of, you know, kosher for Passover and chicken stock cubes. But yeah, I don't know if they've been blessed by a rabbi. But, you know, what stories does that, does the World Food Dial tell about like our changing communities, but also about what sort of people who are not from those communities don't have any connections to them, what they want to eat too. I guess partially it's like based on demographics. So Polish is included in the world food aisle because there is such a high demographic proportion of Polish people. And I think there clearly is some attempt by big supermarkets to kind of accommodate to those tastes, to like kind of cash in on the fact that like, you know, suddenly after 2004, the high street was transformed and there are all of these like Polish hubs. In a way, I think what it does is it's a way of big supermarkets getting a piece of particular demographics cash. And like, I I don't know, like it's always flecked with a particular wariness perhaps for me because I know that the products I'm getting in that aisle are going to be cheap it's going to be cheaper than I get from a Polish shop right. but it's always flexed with flecked with the kind of sadness that if I go into that Polish shop sure. there's always this like familiar smell that reminds me of Poland of smoked meat deli counters <laughs> and like rye bread and and they'll be supporting somebody you know who's 
finding it who I'm sure their overheads and their margins and are really small. Yeah, exactly. And it's not going to be. It's not you know like yeah. I mean that's that's true of course of every shopping decision we make when we go to a supermarket rather than a small independent shop. But also you know I'm not somebody who. It's a it's a it's an act of privilege to shop in the organic deli around the corner or whatever. Usually, isn't it? One hundred percent. I don't feel remotely guilty shopping in Sainsbury's. That's not how I understand my relationship with capitalism. I mean, I've got some insight into how that demographic analysis happens for people who are working who are working in the kind of grocery industry. In that, I spent some. I, I went and visited a spice factory that is owned and run by Natco Foods, an excellent kind of producer of not not just spices, but like they, they sell chickpeas and stuff. You would recognise the branding, I think, immediately if you've ever walked into the World Foods aisle or ever walked into a shop that sells broadly like South Asian ingredients. They bring everything from cardamom to chickpeas to coriander, sort of from actually around the world, not just from South Asia, and then process it and package it in their factory just outside Milton Keynes. And anyway, I was spending time with the with the two excellent um young comrades who run that. Um they are they're good people who like put the profits all towards like really excellent charities in, in India. And they were explaining to me that they would have their salespeople who are the ones that organize, you know, distribution of Natco, you know, how many how many boxes, how many crates of Natco kind of cinnamon powder do we send to the northeast this year? Well, let's speak to our salespeople out there and the salespeople would know on the ground that say this is a totally made up example, but like a, a new kind of um Indian software company has opened a small a small office in Newcastle which is going to be employing like 50 people who most of whom will be flown over from uh from India most of them will be young men who won't be that good at cooking <laughs> and will want but will want a taste of home so actually we're going to up the amount of um of spices and 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 so on, or like maybe instant sort of more kind of instant food so they 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 really carefully because census data is way out of date particularly at this point because it's the census year is this year you know so the last data we have is 2011 if you want a detailed breakdown of like the you know ethnic or regional origin of a particular like area it's not going to be very current anymore um and you have to find other ways or those companies they uh, have to and that goes for Sainsbury's too have to make other bits of educated guesswork basically about what they should be selling and where but they've obviously yeah in East Dulwich they've decided there are enough people that want to buy Polish produce Chinese produce Indian produce Mexican produce I mean I don't think that means there's a large Mexican community in East Dulwich I'm guessing here, but <laughs> But but you know if there was, I don't think they'd be that satisfied with the fucking instant enchiladas pack with a like powdered spice mix. Yeah. Can I just say I think the concept of home here is really interesting because poles who are like I don't know we're just using poles as an example, right? Polish people who like go to Sainsbury's who are overworked, they probably work in or I mean some of them some of them won't, but you know they might work in like manual labor jobs and they go to the world food aisle. And they buy uh, this like four cheese ramen or this curry ramen, <laughs> which aren't particularly, which aren't really like yeah. Polish things that yeah, they would yeah. eat in Poland. But they would buy that over, say, like chicken super noodles that aren't Polish branded because there is like a really, I, th- I think a really, really strong connection between food, 
comma, home. <laughs> and, uh, and like, I guess branding, right? Particularly with like diasporic communities. So one of the things that I remember getting really, really excited about, and yeah. then I told you about, and you got really excited about, was the exhibition at the Migration Museum that was called Room to Breathe. That was so good. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was basically just an exhibition put on by one of my favourite museums. Uh, and they were essentially just looking at different diasporic relationships with like home, with food. And uh, on in one of the parts of the exhibition, they had this shelf mm. and it had food, like it had food packaging and you could pick up a packet of I don't know Yorkshire pudding mix or whatever and then you turn it round and and then on the back there would be like an extract of an oral history so I just want to like really quickly read you my favorite one because I think it ties into these conversations quite nicely so my favorite little object that I saw was like a bottle of West Indian hot pepper sauce and on the back it had a extract of an oral history with a lady named Tara Lehman who came from Trinidad in 1966 and on it it said I did find some of the food quite difficult my pet hate was Brussels sprouts the smell alone was enough not to eat it <laughs> when I was working in the factory I took a bottle of West Indian pepper sauce with me I'd get the English dinner and plaster it with pepper sauce Everybody looked at me as though I was crazy, but it made it edible for me. <laughs> and like what I love about this is the kind of how strongly this food is related to a particular time in her life around migration and kind of settling into a new to a new place. But I think also to be able to hold an object like this was so powerful. And in another episode of Cursed Objects, me and you have spoken about like the power of branding. And God, I would like, I, I, don't, I think like, I'm not trying to give branding agencies advice here or like any, <laughs> any tips, but like if I went to a supermarket and saw an oral history of someone related to like food and migration, I would 100% want to buy that product way more than I would of like a smoothie pretending to be my friend. <laughs> 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 because it's a story that brings that thing to life and gives it... I mean, I think the other key thing here is, uh, and it's something I really wanted to talk about as well, is it's the notion of authenticity, which is a really vexed subject when it comes to food. But what you're suggesting there in your... Um, I mean, if you're going to suggest that to branding agencies, at least charge them 900 quid a day or something. Like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, that's, that's a, I think, their usual rate. But yeah, you know, no, notions of authenticity in food are like incredibly powerful, aren't they? And it's why... We've had some real controversies in the last few years over cultural appropriation and food when you've had, for example, I don't know if people remember this, but um, Jamie Oliver's jerk rice, which came out a couple of years mm. ago, or Sainsbury's producing a Persian curry. You know, I think it sort of behoves us as like white British people to sort of ask to really think about like, you know, what what is offensive about that? Well, it's it's the fact that I'm, I'm saying this because I'm sort of paraphrasing what I remember people with, uh, you know, Caribbean or indeed Persian or indeed South Asian kind of origin saying about those two, two sort of cursed uh, cursed products at the time that were obviously very inauthentic. It was the fact that you have a sort of multi-millionaire in Jamie Oliver or, a, you know, multi-billion pound probably company, Sainsbury's, making money out of something and getting it wrong at the same time, like bastardising it, cheapening it, making it shit, basically, and getting really 
showing just a total lack of care mm. when when approaching sort of a, a food type. So one of my favourite um, pieces on cultural appropriation, which if you sign up to our Patreon, you can get the reference for. Otherwise, you're not having it. Yeah, um, it's by Deborah Root. And it's this like really interesting reflexive engagement with the idea of cultural appropriation, because I think that is a term which is so heavily bastardised and so willfully misunderstood by so many yeah. people. But in it, she says that authenticity Authenticity is the currency at play in the marketplace of cultural difference. So authenticity is the thing. It's the actual like financial thing in a way, the financial underpinning that makes cultural difference kind of marketable. I think what's really interesting is when we look at something like, I don't know, M&S doing a biryani wrap or whatever, <laughs> one of the things that I find so striking about something like that and the kind of backlash against it is that I think what they're trying to do there is kind of going, kind of riffing off the idea that most English people will know the name biryani, but might not know what's actually in a biryani. So yeah, yeah. rather than like, rather than actually like really try and consider that, they kind of do what Deleuze and Guattari might call decorporealize. So they kind of detach it from its historical implications and cultural associations. And they re-encode it with new meanings that are driven by capital considerations and market forces. Yeah. So a biryani is traditionally eaten in like a particular way with rice, but M&S can put out a biryani wrap that doesn't have rice, for example. I think mm -hmm. it didn't have rice. And what they do is they then lead it. They take the name of it, but then lead what actually goes in it based on, I don't know, like market forces. So they're like, most English people like this flavor. So we're going to... So they end up just completely altering it while kind of... While still riffing off of... Of the currency of that word, yeah. I mean... And that's what Jamie Oliver did when he was like, it's jerk rice. <laughs> you know, riffing off the currency yeah, of the yeah. word. I, I agree. I think I think I also want to problematize like the, the idea of authenticity in food a little bit as well. Because I mean, it, obviously like... When people get upset by those things, that is a completely justified and understandable mm. reaction. But there's also there's also sort of a there's a counter narrative here to the idea that like traditional food is a thing and that traditional dishes and native ingredients are a thing. In that, um, let me throw some things at you here. So, like, so if you think of like authentic Italian food, one of the what what are the sort of central ingredients that 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 make it up like tomatoes right would be one of the fundamental ones this blew my mind to discover a few years ago but tomatoes did not arrive in italy until the 16th century <laughs> potatoes there were no potatoes in britain until the 16th century that's probably mm. rather more widely known nobody drank tea in britain until the 17th century no one had afternoon tea in britain until the as a meal until the 19th century Pizza wasn't invented until 1889. And this is my favourite. Ciabatta wasn't invented until the 1980s <laughs> in, in Los Angeles, as far as I remember, or somewhere in California anyway. So, like, you know, that's just a that's just a random list. But, like, I think the Polish curry flavour ramen noodles, you know, really, really highlight that, like, so much of food culture is about the meeting of different worlds and about, about trade mm. and interaction and... Um, you know, often, often under the guise of like brutally like racist imperial conquest and exploitation. Let's let's not forget that this isn't like some just happy kind of meeting. And and you know, I think we've talked in other episodes, and we'll sure talk about it in future ones as well about how trade acts, uh, like the historicization of trade, is often like a really euphemistic way about talking about brutal, yeah. violent 
kind of you know rape and pillage of like of colonial sort of annexed not nations even but like you know parts of the world yeah and so most most of these food histories are not clean happy celebratory ones and and a lot of the discourse around kind of multiculturalism in food is 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 really upbeat and positive and and that's and and with good reason like when robin cook said that chicken tikka masala was England's national dish, Britain's, sorry, national dish in 2001. That, I think, came from a very good place, like in terms of its intention. And it in, in, in doesn't mean that we all like chicken tikka masala, and it definitely doesn't mean that, that chicken tikka masala is something that um, is a beloved and traditional yeah. South Asian food stuff. And, and then actually that, I mean, and that's why like, you know, curry itself, I think, is part of this story. Actually, I'm, and if I may, I'm just going to read a little bit from a book called Curry, Eating, Reading and Race by Nabin Ruthnam, which is a really fun and quite short book about the meanings and histories of what we call curry. Nabin writes, Like the English language, curry is a colonial endpoint. Everything ended up in it, and it remains infinitely changeable, even as its complex colonial roots become, became disguised as homeland authenticity. The tikka masala inventing cooks at Indian restaurants in the 1970s gave Indian, Pakistani and Bangladeshi immigrants a tasteable identity. A primarily British public encountered these people from the saucy, spicy dishes that would seem out of place in the homeland kitchens of these emigre chefs. What the Brits were really eating was the improvisations of various chefs. Tikka masala's disputed origin is that a Pakistani restaurateur in Glasgow added some tomato sauce to the meal of a bus driver who was complaining that his food was dry. Without abandoning the spices on the rack and the colonially colonially informed cuisine they grew up with, the immigrant cooks of Great Britain shaped a cuisine that is definitive of eating out and carry out food in the UK. He goes on to say, Indian recipes, including ones in the vast curry family, have been adapted or altered to suit rulers, visitors and colonial intruders for hundreds of years with pulao rice arising from Persian pilau rice, and with creams and spices being increased or decreased in various dishes to suit the increasingly adventurous palates of British Raj occupiers. The Bangladeshi, Indian and Pakistani immigrant cooks in 1970s England, who added tin tomatoes, ginger, garlic and chilli to tandoor-forged chicken to make tikka masala, weren't undoing centuries of tradition. They were innovating and adapting a living cuisine that has sustained itself not by pandering to foreign cultures, but by absorbing them. The inauthenticity of curry is its greatest claim to its position as a reflection of global history and the present politics of hunger, eating and identity. So that's like a lovely, like, fuck yeah, inauthenticity. Inauthenticity is great. I think also that like a lot of postmodernists would say that there is no such thing as authenticity. There are just, there is just the shopping mall. (laughs) There's just the big Sainsbury's. (laughs) Like, you know, there, this idea that there is like a true idealized form has also actually, interestingly, been used against uh, particular peoples. So um, Deborah Root explores like First Nation peoples in Canada and how when like local authorities wanted to like take their land, often they would say like, oh, but, you know, you eat pizza and you drive cars. So your kind of like life experiences are inauthentic as a first right. as someone from the First Nation peoples, basically. So it's like this idea of like a mythology authenticity actually it can work in many ways as like being quite detrimental we always need to critique what it means i guess but i think you can still acknowledge that authenticity matters in some way you know it still matters and i'd love to try and tease out sort of when it (laughs) 
when is it good and when is it bad? Obviously, I'm being very reductive and silly there, but like you know, what what, what determines whether it's um, it's salient or not? I mean, I think another example of when it is a problem is is sort of when it becomes when that authenticity, like who's determining what is authentic? And Paul Gilroy has written about sort of what he describes as a kind of volkish tendency, a sort of essentialist tendency that is determined by gatekeepers, by the powerful people within, say, a diasporic community to determine what is the authentic way of practicing that culture that actually is detrimental to people with less power within that community. And so, and and that's, I think, a really important um, question to ask. Who are the cultural gatekeepers, both inside and outside, that sort of determine whether something is traditional, whether determine how you, you know, who decides how you make the dish? Like, you know, when they're, and when these, when these questions, when it comes to food are contested, like, as they so often are, like, oh my God, you can't possibly make pizza with that sort of crust. Well, actually, in this city, we do make it with this sort of crust. And um, in fact, that neatly brings me on to Italians getting mad about food. (laughs) <laughs> which I think is a good way of unpicking some of these like tensions, believe it or not. <laughs> but like, I, I, I can't believe I'd never heard of it, of, of, um, of this. It's, it's like a Facebook page and a, they've got a Twitter account. They've got an Instagram and, and so on. And I think they make their own merch. That's how successful they are now. Uh, but Italians getting mad about food is an f- absolutely hilarious thing. If you haven't heard of it, it's worth checking out. And it's, it's exactly what it says. It is. It's basically, the trolling of the Italian people with <laughs> things like, um, you know, a mac and cheese burger or a chicken bolognese or, and this is one that I have not seen on Italians getting mad about food, but it's one I remember from my own childhood, a chocolate and marshmallow Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles pizza. So it was like, it was a branded pizza to promote like a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing, film or whatever. And it was a dessert pizza with chocolate and marshmallow on it. And I remember seeing that at the age of about eight and being like, no, that's too far. That's gross. Get out of here. Like, you know, I was the, I was the like cultural protectionist at that moment. That really reminds me, whenever I watch a TV cooking competition and there's like a Polish person on it, I always like wait in dread before they're going to make some kind of weird shit. I'm watching and I'm like, I see them like picking up a piece of meat or something to cook and I'm like, don't put fruit on it, don't put fruit on it, don't put fruit on it. And you know it's coming, you know. It's like the fucking changing of the seasons. You know that guy is going to pair that like beautiful piece of meat with something hideous. 70s dinner party style, yeah. Like, oh, do you you know what this? Do you know what this chicken casserole needs? Some bananas. Like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ah! Don't do it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like, I wanted to ask though. So, like, what, you know, why is it that we find Italians getting mad about food hilarious as opposed to sympathetic? And I, I think I have a tentative answer to that question. Like, is it because, like, the response to the Jamie's, you know, jerk rice fiasco? were from most right thinking, you know, liberal people, whether white or black or like Caribbean origin or not, was like, come on man, like that's 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 a piss take. But our response to like corruption and absolutely like ridiculous things done uh, to so-called Italian food, often by Americans, let's be fair, is like one of general hilarity. And is the distinction there because it's it's just quite funny to troll people who aren't actually being done any harm? Like they're not being exploited and they are 
clearly taking their own food culture far too seriously in saying, if you make carbonara with cream, I will absolutely, like, my head will explode and my grandmother will roll over in her grave. Like the, <laughs> the overreaction obviously is what's funny, but is it different? Is that sort of like a, just a chill thing to laugh about because um, ultimately Italian food and Italian people and their place in the world are fairly established and like nobody is denying them the opportunity to make an authentic Neapolitan pizza or a ragu bolognese. And like it, it comes down to a conversation about power dynamics and exploitation. And when, you know, like the basic rights to a free cultural life and the practicing of your traditions haven't been, they haven't been denied to Italians, have they? You know, like, like, yeah, 100%. As much as many Italians were also like incredibly poor refugees and migrants throughout the 19th century and like a lot of the early 20th century as well, let's not forget. But um, but at this particular moment in time, you know, Italian Americans are can have their authentic Italian. Well, I mean, Italian American food is itself it obviously inauthentic, like in the sense, or rather, it is a separate tradition of authenticity that begins with Italian migration to America. It's not actually often that much like Italian food itself. Yeah, I think there are, I think it's an interesting phenomenon. I definitely in the Italian case, there are instances of a cultural protectionism, which are also, I think, domestically linked to, like, I don't know, I read an article recently, well, actually, it wasn't that recently, about like the restriction of particular foods that can be grown in uh, in Italy, like the restriction of like Chinese cabbages <laughs> or like mm. uh, Chinese lettuces because of them not being like authentically Italian, which again comes into this idea of like they're being an authentic. But I think there are two kind of questions or two things that are at play here. I think the first is that there are genuine questions, I think, that surround the idea of cultural appropriation. Again, a concept that I believe is like very heavily misunderstood so again to quote from my like favorite my favorite woman (laughs) Deborah Root here she asked the question is appropriation theft and she says at its base appropriation seems to involve a profound sense of entitlement on the part of the person or institution doing the appropriating which behaves as if the desired object or images already belong to it This attitude parallels the imaginary relationship a person tends to have with any object of desire. But here the dynamic is extended to images and sensibilities that are part of and already belong to living cultural traditions. Appropriation reduces the living people and culture to the status of objects. If the person who is appropriating imagines that he or she already possesses whatever happens to catch their eye, then the source of all the fascination can have no say in the terms of exchange. If we think we already own something, why would we ask somebody's permission to take it? (laughs) Someone like Jamie Oliver takes the idea of like jerk rice. And like, let's be honest here. He also, he has a really, really checkered history. (laughs) I was watching an episode of the, no, actually I saw it on YouTube, but they've taken it down where he's, he says like, oh, I'm going to, with this recipe, I'm going to let out my inner Sudanese immigrant side. And then he starts like, he starts saying like, wind your body. (laughs) He starts saying like, and like gyrating in like a really, really odd way. (laughs) Well, like not really odd way, really racist way, actually. But like, I think it's one of those things that like, you know, I think there is a marked, sorry, I think there is a marked 
difference from someone like Jamie Oliver doing something like creating a kind of jerk rice thing to sell and someone like Nigella Lawson in her recent series she like credited the political pundit pundit political commentator Ash Sarkar for her fish finger uh, border which is like kind of like a mashed up fish finger mm. thing which is all about like hybridity it's a recipe of like hybridity but Nigella yeah. in her program was like oh I saw this recipe and I loved it and I'm like I'm bringing it to more people but I'm still like referencing it as someone else's as like someone else's re- as like yeah, a yeah. person who is like of like South Asian I think as, as like mm. a person who has like experienced this as their childhood, which is a mashup, a hybrid of two different cultures. There is a marked difference between her giving a nod yeah. and like someone like Jamie. No, completely. I mean, it's sometimes, the distinction is sometimes I've seen it distilled as, and I find this quite a cheesy phrase, but it does get to the heart of it. Cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation. The point being with the latter that you're not dispossessing the culture that you are borrowing from or cooking the fish finger sandwich of you know like and 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 so that's just that's good praxis basically from queen nigella Mm -hmm. and we would expect nothing less right you know another counter example from the cultural appropriation food wars because they are ongoing let's face it was just this last week there was some recipes in the observer by fuchsia dunlop that of like sichuan uh dishes i think and you had a bunch of white leftists, I mean, I was pointed to this, a bunch of white, like a couple anyway, but it got, got did good numbers on Twitter, uh, being like, oh my God, Fuchsia Dunlop making Chinese food. Come on, typical observer, blah, blah, blah. That, you know, why haven't you got someone Chinese to do this? Now, you could definitely say that like British born Chinese cooks need, like deserve more of a place in our food media, 100%. But like, the ragging on Fuchsia Dunlop because she has a posh white woman's name and is a posh white woman, like, ignores the fact, like, it was just out of ignorance, basically. Fuchsia Dunlop trained in Chengdu in Sichuan for so many years, is widely respected as a, like, world-leading expert in Sichuan food. The way she presents it to the West is in the way it is consumed in Sichuan, in Chengdu, which is the capital of Sichuan, like, with great respect and reverence, and it just—it was just like a mischosen target. I know it's not the worst thing that's ever happened on the internet, but it pissed me off because it's just like it's just overreach from inevitably like white leftists. And if we all stayed in our same sort of, if we if we all sort of followed our own cultural path and never branched out from that, we'd live in a much more boring world I think. I completely agree and I think that one of the things that's happening within these conversations is okay there's like an there's like a sense of like some people overreaching but I think more importantly there is this kind of overwhelming sense that like talking about different cultures and inherently the kind of connections to like empire that produce these kind of cultural exchanges is really challenging because it's been made to be challenging for like hundreds of years. That was the heart of the colonial project to make (laughs) these uh, conversations around the afterlives or even like the actual processes of colonization and how a lot of these foods like came into being, how a lot of these foods were like transported from one continent to another. They are like inherently challenging. And it's actually what it's, this is like a phenomenon that Laura Ann Stoller calls cultural aphasia. So in a, so she says, in aphasia an occlusion of knowledge is the issue it's not a matter of ignorance or absence 
Aphasia is a disremembering, a difficulty speaking, a difficulty generating a vocabulary that associates appropriate words and concepts with appropriate things. Aphasia, in its many forms, describes a difficulty of retrieving both conceptual and lexical vocabularies, and most importantly, a difficulty comprehending what is spoken. So I really feel like what's happening here is that there's a sense that these conversations are happening because they need to be had, but how those conversations, like the right ways of having those conversations or how those conversations can manifest is inherently complex because they're only fairly recent. Are we essentially saying we've got, you know, we have centuries of like stuff to unravel here. So it's not surprising that it's taking a little while, basically. Is that, is that? 100%. 100%. And I think, you know, if there's like a kind of, there's like a little bit of overreach or whatever. And and like one of the things that you can really see this in is definitely in the 1990s culture, which is coming like really heavily under scrutiny. It's been really heavily under scrutiny for like what the past, I'd say like eight-ish years, maybe 10 years. But I think in the 1990s, it was such a strange moment where literally the decade that had predated it was like rife with absolute, in this country, racism. Where there was like the NF, you know, gaining and traction. And then this kind of 1990s cultural moment happened. And there were all of these people trying to signal their kind of cosmopolitan, maybe not anti racist, but their not racist tendencies, you know, like, yeah, I kind of go to. I go to Camden Market and I wear these kind of signs and symbols and I'm into like, you know, particular concepts of culture or spirituality or whatever from different cultures. It was like a nod to a kind of cosmopolitanism that definitely Robin Cook's like tikka masala speech where he says that tikka masala is like the most like prominent mm. dish now and it takes this from Indian chefs and it takes this from British cuisine. You know, it was a kind of attempt to foster a kind of really a kind of new British national identity, a new sense of unity. But I think obviously 20 years on, the discourse has changed (laughs) and there needs to be a fluidity to accept that actually now it's not enough to say I'm not Uh, I'm not a racist because I kind of shop in the world food aisle. It's like, it's important that you acknowledge, (laughs) you know, that you can... Imagine someone saying that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's important to kind of acknowledge that the discourses have changed because racism has still persisted, (laughs) you know, that these these structures of marginalisation have still, still exist. So, you know, when some of our poorest communities are people who come from like Pakistani, Bangladeshi, like black Chinese backgrounds, we still have to kind of really interrogate whether or not eating, like ordering food from your local Indian restaurant or Chinese restaurant is enough to say that you're not a racist. I would hope that we've moved, yeah, you know, moved on from from that as a sort of discourse position in, in the 19, which it, which it really was at, at points, you know, like, oh, how can I be, how can I be racist? I love my local curry house. It was like, yeah, you yeah. also like treat the people who work there like crap. You know, that was, I think the sort of state of the discourse a couple of de- a few decades ago, sort of suddenly in the sort of seventies. And but I think like, sorry, just to say, but I think think like conversations like cultural appropriation, they really actually open up the opportunities for interrogating the kind of long and complex histories around like colonization, around racial differences they are an opportunity but they're seen so often and I've seen this in so many food writers have been like oh you can't have cultural appropriation with food and it's like rather than looking at it as like a profound attack on your character it should be seen as an opportunity to really engage in some of the like really complex histories that exist in this country yeah yeah and actually 
And on that, I do, absolutely. I mean, and on that note, I mean, I think we should nod to Vittles, which is yes. the increasingly successful and powerful um, and widely read newsletter publication started by Jonathan Nunn, which is forging finally some like really great new ground in food media, which is a, ins- you know, has been an insanely stuffy, insanely sort of white and sort of small C conservative and big A aristocratic <laughs> kind of Wells traditionally. 100%. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of great stuff out there about food and um, the sort of sociology of food is, and how kind of race and appropriation and uh, multiculturalism all into play. I have learned so much from the additions that they've, like, included there. It's just really great writing as well. Is that... A, I think that's as good a place <laughs> to end as any. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and eat some... some Possibly the Please don't send me pictures. Every single time you tell me about it, it triggers me. <laughs> like it really triggers me. Do you know what I actually what I actually really want to do with these uh, cursed objects is make ramen flight fried chicken, mm. where you um, you smash up the noodles, which are obviously like rock hards <laughs> at the moment, and you use those as a sort of like crunchy, um, and then use the flavoring sachets as well. You basically use everything apart from no, obviously no boiling water and coat your chicken thighs in the contents of these various packets. Christ alive. It looks ridiculous, but, you know, what else am I going to do with them? I don't really want to eat them out of a bowl. Um, cool. Well, I've, I've been Dan Hancocks. Um, this has been a delicious and very enjoyable conversation. There's lots more that we can suggest you to read, which you can check out on our Patreon if you subscribe encourage you to do um please uh tell a friend about the podcast i've been dan hancocks and, and i've been Kasha t thank you so much for listening and so we will remain and so we will Cheers. remain bye, bye. <laughs>